You're listening to Founders on Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. This podcast is sponsored by Zoom to You, Australia's on-demand courier marketplace. Get your parcels delivered within hours rather than days. Today we have with us Tristan Eels, co-founder of Liftango. Liftango is an on-demand transport and carpool technology platform. Hey Tristan, thanks for joining us today. No worries. Great to be here. Thanks. Congrats on what you're building with Lyft Tango. It's another great Aussie success story in the mobility space. And in fact, you guys are based out of Newcastle and uh, taking it to the globe. Yeah. yeah, it's a really exciting time for us. Newey as the home, but the world as the market. So uh, it's one of those funny things being in such a small sort of town, but having such a global kind of focus is, is exciting, but also, you know, thing we have to work through from time to time, I guess. Yeah. Fantastic. Actually, we know a lot of great success stories coming out of Newcastle, our friends yeah. at Camplify. And That's it. There's a few of us yeah. up there. Yeah, there's something in the water up there. Hunter Water's doing something right. There's a few good stories coming out of Newcastle. Yeah. I believe the rent's a little bit lower. Rent's lower, yeah. beach is closer, less traffic. There's a load of reasons. Yeah. I'm there. Yeah. All right. Space <laughs> the team. That's yeah. Tell us, what do you do when you're not working uh, at Lift Tango? Yeah. So I, I'm one of those classic cases of just having had kids. So it's funny, all of us three founders have all had kids roughly at the same sort of time, and we've all agreed that it's exactly the wrong time when you're starting a business to have kids. But that's where we're at. So we've all got two kids each. So most of the time, to be honest, is spent on that. Bit of surfing, bit of skateboarding. Most of that now focused on trying to get the kids to surf and skate in the future. But that's yeah, that's the kind of that's the kind of thing we all get up to. So Lift Tango, is Lift Tango how you pronounce it? Or is oh, it? it's one of those, like, we actually got some advice to choose as ambiguous a name as you are comfortable going with because that question comes up and then it sort of puts a tick in the person's mind and they're like, is it Lift and Go? Is it Lift and Go? Is it, yeah. So we call it Lifty. You can call it Lifty from now if you want. Right. But yeah, Lift and Go is how we sort of Lift pronounce Tango, it. Lift Yeah, yeah. Okay, Lift cool. Tango. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny one though. It does so, come up a lot. So Lifty's your third baby. Really. Yeah, basically. We all have this, this <laughs> shared thing um, and it probably gets too much attention compared to our actual babies. But, you know, that's just the way it goes, right? <laughs> They're not listening to this, so they won't hear it. <laughs> so tell us what Lift Tango is all about and how you guys got started and, and what your big vision is. Yeah, okay. Um, well, Liftango started like a good joke. This comes up quite a bit. So the three founders, there's myself, I'm Welsh, there's Kevin, who's Scottish, and there's Alex, who's a, well, a Frenchman. So it's the classic case of a you know Welshman, Scotchman, and a Frenchman walk into a bar and come out with an idea. And <laughs> it was literally like that kind of obvious. So initially, uh, this, the, the, the focus of the business was around carpooling. So that's where we started. Looking around, Kevin Kevin Orr, who's the, the the main founder who sort of started the program, was driving his wife to and from the hospital and looking around at everyone else in the traffic jam around them going, everyone else is going to the same destination, yet there's only one person in each of these cars. And so it was that realization there's all this latent capacity in the cars on the roads. Why can't we do something about it? Technology exists to do this. And so it all stemmed from that. And then Kev went through the accelerator program with the Slingshot guys. So they ran this program with the NRMA as a sponsor, and that's kind of where the idea built legs and then built some initial tech. And then myself and Alex came on board and took it to the next level, and it's sort of grown grown from there, really. That was the origin story, anyway. Fantastic. And what's the other part of the question? What is our mission? Uh, well, yeah, what's your big vision? Like, yeah. yeah. So we believe in a world without traffic. You know, our view is there's this potential in all those cars and vehicles that are on the roads, and we build technology platforms that unlocks that, whether it be 
you know, in my private car going to and from work or in a bus that's running around empty around the back of the suburbs because it's not routing effectively. So we build technology platforms and programs that fit around the outside of that to, to unlock that latent capacity and bring it back in and make it useful. One of the things that we always talk about at the conference is, you know, the, the four pillars of mobility in the future, you know, connected, autonomous, electric and shared. There's all this fancy stuff going on around connected and autonomous, and that, but our view is shared is crucial. We've got to get that right now so that we can build for the future, yeah. And carpooling, it, it makes sense, right? Like, I guess most people who own a car and they drive and they, they see, like, you know, there's only one person in each vehicle. Um, I'm involved with the car sharing business, Car Next Door. You know, ashamedly, I, I do drive, you know, on my own to drive to work each day. I do like driving. But I, I would actually prefer to carpool. Yeah. So why has carpooling not been that successful to date? And how are you guys doing it differently? Yeah, it's really hard to get people to share their trips. It's really, really hard. And the reason is we have this inbuilt relationship with our car it's my personal space it's my own little area so i think the reality is what we've tried and tested we now have 50 clients across you know various clients across business parks and universities and hospitals with each of those we've learned a bit about how you get people to do that and the reality is the technology does only a certain amount it's all the stuff around the outside that makes the big difference so how you incentivize how you market what are the rewards you're going to put on the table for people to make that choice? So that's what we've been learning about is how we get that whole model right. And the technology is the enabling part of it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And so, like, how did you get started in this? Like, what were you doing prior to this that led you to... to yeah, this? nothing as interesting. I'm a failed engineer. I did an engineering, you know, mechanical engineering background, was rubbish at it, went into aerospace for a while, hated the slow pace of an aerospace business. Sorry to all those people that work in aerospace, but it it sucks. (laughs) And then moved into management consulting when I came out to Australia and spent a lot of time working around different businesses and helping them fix problems and so on. So I've always had that kind of problem solving mentality going on. And then Kevin reached out when I'd moved to France to do some contract work with Airbus and was like, hey, do you want to do this thing? And it sounded really exciting because I was back in aerospace again. So it was really just a, a massive difference from what I was doing before. But a lot of the same underlying kind of fundamental things about how do you look at business and how do you make it work and how do you solve problems and stuff. So it was dragged into it by Kev, but I had, you know, I, I, I was excited by the proposition of getting into a startup. Yeah, awesome. awesome. Yeah. And what sort of scale has the business got to? You mentioned you've got 50 customers now. Yep, 50 cust- Well, 50 carpool customers, four live carpool, uh, on-demand bus programs. We've got an autonomous vehicle version of an on-demand bus program coming uh, very soon in March in Dubbo, of all places. Yeah, right. So um, what, what does that involve? So that's an on-demand bus service, okay. but where the bus is autonomous vehicle. So we're overlaying our on-demand booking system into a world where the driver shouldn't exist in the future. And so trying to unpick how the user experience changes, how the ticketing changes, all that sort of stuff that we need to unpack. So instead of putting the trams in the Sydney CBD, they should have just put an autonomous bus? Totally. A few more of those. Or trackless trams. or Might have been a bit faster as well. A bit quicker to market. And and, and save a few billion. Let's not talk about that. (laughs) I think we're 100% agreed on that. Yeah. Yeah, no, and so I guess our, one of our visions is that exact thing. How can we change? How can we change people's perspective of public transport by changing the user experience? It's always been the option of last resort. I, I only get the bus if my car doesn't work or if it's in the yeah, garage. Yeah, yeah. But that's because the user experience is rubbish on buses. And 
timetables have been fixed and routes have been fixed because technology wasn't around to do that. Well, now the tech's here, we can actually bring an Uber-style experience to a bus, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, awesome. And cool. so the, the types of customers that you're going after, is it all government or...? Uh, it's a mix, yeah. So we have some partnerships with corporates that do a lot for on-demand bus. We have um, typically with you the tech, and then we have a bus partner that does the operations, and then there's a government or some kind of um, agency, transit agency that does the, the service provision stuff. So we are B2B, but we have a bit of a B2B to C flavor because yeah, yeah. we sell to clients that then have to market and we get involved in that marketing to the customers as well. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Can you share some stories with us about how commuters are leveraging Lyft Tango to minimise their carbon footprint and to manage their commute? Yeah. So on Carpool, or on, so on Carpool, it's an interesting one. Universities are a great example of, of this deployment working. So they're hitting, you know, anything up to 250, 300 carpool trips a day, which is 300 cars eliminated from their parking spaces. And that translates into a significant saving in carbon, that's CO2. So this year alone, we've saved, I think, 2.5 million uh, kilometres of road travel. And that's equated to about 800,000 kilograms of CO2, which is which for us is pretty exciting. You know, there are different motivations for different clients, but some of them are focused on CO2 and some of them are focused on, on the travel aspect. And I think on the on-demand bus side, People generally, when they start to get involved with using an on-demand service, they anecdotally, they tell us, I just sell my second car. I don't need it anymore, right? I've got this service that does everything I need it to. So that's typically what happens. People get involved, they use the service, and they go, do you know what? I'm going to become a one-car family instead of two. And so that to us is, is success, where people are changing their behavior towards using a socially responsible form of transport. How much capital have you raised to date? Um, are you looking to raise more capital? There might be some investors yeah, listening, some VCs. Yeah, yeah. And who's your perfect investor? Who you know? Who have you got on your cap table? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we've raised just under four, so 3.8, I think it is at the moment, million Aussie up, up until this stage. Initial sort of seed round, and before that, the accelerator program brought with it a small amount. But the latest round, which is about nine, tw- uh, what, ten, ten months ago. That was the exciting one. That was the one that was most complex. Kev led the process and we all sort of chipped in and, and supported the way through it. And so we brought on board Transdev as a corporate partner and Transdev Australasia, a great, great partnership to have. They've invested. So they're backing us um, to, you know, in terms of what our tech does. Previously to that, we had a few corporates come on board and a few angels come on board in the, in the previous round. So GUD, which is a, a tier two automotive supplier out of Melbourne, They've been great. They, so what's ideal for us is if we get someone that comes in that brings more than just dollars. I know that's a cliche, but for us, that's been huge. You know, Transdev bring partnerships, bring advice, bring overseas knowledge that we can leverage. And just like when you're playing with big players, you need to have that name in, on your side. So that's been massive for us. How, how yeah. did you get Transdev on board? Yeah, it was a, a case, as often is the way, I think, of really good timing coupled with lots of energy on our side and so we met them at a conference so we, we spent a lot of time getting buy one get one free or buying one ticket for three of us in conferences and getting in and then just hustling to meet and we've met a few people so, so did you know like the person you had to go no, on target or you no, just not really bumped so into them or? We, we, we always have we've had a and this is one thing we always talk about we have a list of people that we want to meet next or we want to have conversations with we're like you know from our position we have corporate partners that we need like a vehicle a vehicle manufacturer an OEM a bus operations partner, an infrastructure development, um, a financier. So we've had this list and we've had names against them. And at this conference, Transdev was on the list and we saw there was a, a guy that we met 
had a really good chat with. He's French. We spoke French, and there's a bit of a bonding thing going on. And we sort of it turned into a couple of pitches, and 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 from there it, it sort of turned into the investment. But we didn't necessarily go right. We're going to speak to that organisation, and we're going to hunt them down. We had a list. Whenever they came up in any kind of organisation or any kind of you know interaction, we just went really hard at trying to turn it into a into a positive interaction and yeah, finding cool. where the value was. Cool. Yeah. And how, how long did that process take from that first oh, meeting to getting a deal done? Too long. Mate, it <laughs> took... Yeah, so so a of a French company and Australia has this foreign investment review process, FERB. <laughs> so it was planned to take 30 or 40 days. It took about three months. It's just one of those things, you know. So we spent a lot of time trying to get Transdev Group comfortable with the valuation of the company. I have to be careful what I say here because there's some stuff going backwards and forwards during that process. But that that was the most complicated. We're dealing with a big corporate investing, you know, a good portion of that raise was getting their group headquarters as well as the local guys all on board with the terms, with the valuation, with because you know, there was a couple of things attached to it around exclusivity and contract pricing and all those sorts yeah, of things because yeah. they wanted access to our technology yeah so it was a it was a perfect you know perfect scenario for us because we had an operations partner and we had a dance partner for projects in the future but yeah it's hard it yeah, took a lot okay. longer than we than we expected and did you find your legal team sort of helped you with like negotiations was that yes important? yeah so we have a guy also in newcastle who's been through this quite a few times before like crucial having that person that knows the pitfalls for us young players uh, yeah, he was he was sensational. And actually, a couple of our investors from the first round helped, you know, having been through it before themselves, they're sort of angels who've done it before. And that was really useful to be able to draw on them and sound things out. And also the Slingshot team, so they've always been quite useful to bounce ideas around about, you know, hey guys, what do you think about this? And sort of Kevin's been liaising quite a lot with that team. So you need those people for yeah, sure yeah, to yeah. get through that. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Parkhound, Australia's parking marketplace. To find a convenient parking space near your home or office. Post-investment, what's it like having a corporate on your register and presumably on your board? Yeah. How, how's that been managing that uh, we have to dynamic? Wear smarter shirts to the board. <laughs> no, no more t-shirts. No more t-shirts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> can live no, with that. Yeah, we can deal with that because it brings a lot of positives. So they, you know, we're leveraging the strengths that they bring. For sure, it does change the dynamic a little bit, but if you keep your st- the structure of your board right, you can get the balance between, and you have to be sort of especially conscious of what that corporate investor wants from you and how you structure it so that you don't end up just being a resource that they'll use for something. You know, Liftango has ambitions beyond just this raise and beyond just a partnership with Transdev. Sorry, Transdev, if you're listening, but the reality is that you know. So you have to be aware of that and have enough people on your side so you can balance it so everyone gets what they want without constraining your business. And that was a tricky process to go through. Alignment, alignment, and and just preventing unnecessary barriers to your own growth in the future by by getting hungry and getting white line fever for what's you know the deal that's on the table for that raise in front of you, I guess. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. Mm. And what what does your board sort of look like today? Five of us. Okay. A couple of founders, a couple of corporates, and then one one angel. Okay. So no, we don't have an invi- we have an informal advisory board, and we're working. You know, each of the founders has their own little mini advisory network, but we have the yeah, the main board is is made up of a, a mix between ourselves and and I think we've we've got the balance right. You know, we we're able to get through things quickly. There's no complexity yet. Again, if you're listening, Transdev, take note of that. <laughs> David, yeah, no, it's been great. It's be, it's a uh, you got to get the balance right, and then you're okay. Yeah, okay. And how often do you meet as a board? Quarterly, 
Yeah, we have updates in the meantime. And actually, we spend a lot of time, one of the board members is our lead contact at Transdev. So we spend a lot of time talking with them about, you know, project updates and projects we're working on together. So there's a lot of informal stuff that goes on around those, but formally, quarterly. Yeah, cool. Excellent. Yeah. And so, so talk to me about sort of how you go about getting your customers. Like, what does the business development sort of look like? And yeah, what have you set up from a marketing channels? Yeah. So we have an absolute gun, JJ, who looks after the marketing stuff. So you know, website, all those those nurturing nurturing campaigns and that sort of thing. And then on the other side, because we're heavily B2B, we've got quite a narrow segment of who we're going after. We're not we're not open up to the world. So, you know, our our, our version is we're we're sniper marketing essentially. So we're targeting very specific people in very specific organizations and putting our dollars towards them. We do a lot of conferences to be honest. Conferences we found maybe it's because we're we're easy to get on with but or because our clients are actually in the market looking for solutions to the problem. So they're at these places looking for things they can use to help solve their problems. So we found that's been a really useful channel. And that's where over the last couple of years, we've gotten the majority of our clients is through making a connection and turning it into a project from that point. Increasingly, however, over the last six to 12 months, we've seen a lot more organic leads coming through website, coming through marketing channels. So it's it's, it's been you know 70, 30, and now it's going the other way. And so what would you say is the most successful sort of marketing channel? Historically, it's been that face-to-face, going to conferences, getting... So so the self-selecting approach of going and speaking at a conference, yeah. you're speaking to you know, 500, 800 people who have already self-selected because they're at the, the event and they self-select further because they feel like your face and they like the way you chat and they like your 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 product, they'll come and talk to you afterwards. And so you, you, know, you save a lot of time having just random conversations. So that's been really valuable. And I think... Over the next six to 12 months, some of the more targeted LinkedIn campaigns we're doing to specific segments, to specific areas and specific geographies, to specific uh, role types, you know, um, we'll, we'll start to, it's already starting to show that difference. So you asked me in about six months time, it'll probably be the other way around, I reckon. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. awesome. Yeah. And so how, how big is your team and sort of how have you gone about sort of building your culture and making sure that sort of works really well? Yeah. Um, last year's been crazy. We've gone from, I think we went from 10 to 20, which doesn't sound like a lot to people who have big businesses, but for a doubling in size in the in the matter of months, is pretty quick. We're really lucky. We're in Newey. There's a good pool of people. We were talking about this before. You know, there's university provides a great pool of talent in tech. And we've got really lucky in bringing those young, young guys in who are hungry, who are keen, who are smart, way smarter than us. And that's been really useful. So we've been quite careful about who comes in. And if we're honest, we've had a few that haven't, like the culture hasn't quite worked out with. So, you know, it's been a combination of selecting appropriately and hiring locally in Newcastle. And that's that's the strategy for at least the next year, two years, is to keep that core, you know, core team culture together in one location. And I think that's pretty important, you know, especially if, if when you're moving as quickly as we are at this stage, you, having everyone in the room to have those immediate conversations and go, guys, let's just gather around and talk about this for five minutes and you get that interaction. It's really hard if everyone's spaced out. That may come, but initially the core team will be in Newcastle and keeping that culture set is, is pretty key for us. Yeah. Awesome. So what so what have been some of the least effective ways to grow your business? What, what hasn't worked? Uh, Often we, the feedback we get from founders is telling us too many good stories. Yeah, yeah. Tell There's us lots of highs stuff. and lows. Yeah. Tell us some of the lows. Yeah, least effective so actually, we, you know, interestingly, we started initially, someone gave us some advice to get some, get some rainmakers. You need some rainmakers on board. Get some contracts signed up with, with people who know everyone, who've got Rolodexes full of people. 
hasn't led to much at all, to be honest. It's helped out where we've had an initial contact and then one of our investors has said, hey, I know that person. I'll have a chat, grease the wheels. But finding con- you know, con- consultants, contractors, well-connected people and getting them on a referral deal, for some reason, hasn't worked for us. And maybe there's not enough alignment of goals. You're like, you know. So, yeah, be skeptical of that one, for sure. And I will be ongoing. So that's that's one, for sure. Yeah, that's probably the main one that jumps to mind in terms of like sales channels. Yeah, or any sort of mistakes made, I suppose. Yeah, plenty of those. <laughs> Have we all? <laughs> I think the I mean the mistake we always make, and it's really hard to counter, is not saying no. So saying yes to too many things. Like you know, you can you can go to your board and say, hey, look, there's all these opportunities out there. There's not there's no shortage of ideas and opportunities that look great on paper. Where we've made mistakes in in the past is not saying we're saying yes to things that actually aren't quite as aligned to our project. You know, revenue's on the table. Oh, it looks exciting. Let's give it a crack. It's kind of aligned. And then you're diverting your resource for a while and then dilute your, your core. Gen- so like sticking to your core product is we've learned that lesson a little bit and um, we've refocused a bit. Yeah. yeah thanks for sharing. Yeah. And so leading on from that, what have been some of the hairy moments in the business? I guess we've all had them. It's a you know, yeah. roller coaster day to day. How hairy do you want? As hairy as, as hairy it can be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The humdinger was for, well, we were sitting. And, and how did you get through it? Yeah. Um, am I allowed to say alcohol? Like, there was a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, it was, so we were, was there, at the time, we were going through the raise. Transdev was the lead investor. Lots of the other investors were hanging on a response from the, the Australian government saying, like, can Transdev take the stake? So Foreign Investment looks at investments coming in from overseas and says, can this be allowed? Is this too critical to to infrastructure and all that sort of stuff? And we were looking at ourselves going, hang on, we're a small technology startup based out of Newcastle. Sure, we do technology, but why are these guys getting involved? These guys normally look at huge acquisitions between energy sector you know, players. And Anyway, we had to go through the process and it extended way beyond what anyone expected it to. And keeping keeping the other investors who are already committed as committed as they were. You know, investors have lots of deals coming over their tables. They've got free capital ready to go. They free it up by ex- exiting something or, you know, so th- we were aware that there was this pressure from the other investors who'd committed but didn't have as long a time frame as we perhaps had. Uh, and that was probably the worst because, you know, if one or two of the investors had said, hey, this is taking too long, I'm out, all of a sudden, what do you do there? Like, how do you fill that gap when you've got some negative energy? Like, momentum is important when you're raising, and if you start to lose that at any point, it, you know, it, it would be negatively infectious. So, you know, Kev was working really hard to keep everyone comfortable and going, it's okay, it's coming, and it was over the Christmas break. And so we, we got together over the Christmas break, the founders, and spent a lot of time in the office just, like, letting out a lot of steam, just getting really frustrated because it was, you know, it's your future, and it's being held up in some bureaucratic process, and you're in danger of losing it all. So crazy. It was uh, wild. Um, how, how did they get involved, and like, how did that happen? Ferb. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just an. Uh, it's one of the conditions of an investment from an overseas body, and Transdev is the Transdev local entity has a um, the French arm owns it, right? So that's where it came from. I think there was a couple of conditions. It was over a certain amount, and it, we fitted into one of the gazetted industries that had to have a FERB review on it. We got lots of advice from people that said, yeah, it'll be fine. They'll tick the box, take 30 days, relax. And so when the answer came back, no, this is going on for longer than expected, and they wanted more clarifications. We were drinking more and more scotch and getting more and more worried about it every week. And it went over Christmas, and so everyone really enjoyed Christmas. And then we came back in January, and on the night, when the decision was being made, we all got into the office and it was a stinking hot day. And 
it just had a you know when the answer came through it just got wild it was just like that release of pressure was just yeah. insane yeah party time yeah <laughs> it was heavy <laughs> yeah it's just i think the dealing with the stress of the dichotomy of the situation if it comes back positive here we go again roller coaster ride excitement another two years if it comes back negative geez like yeah what next how do, what yeah. next and how do you tell everyone how do you bounce back from that it, it just there's not many well, not that I've experienced, there's not many moments in life where you have such a big fork in the road moment where you have to contemplate two horrific outcomes, both of which are, you know, Schrodinger's cat, don't open the box, and both are there. But Crazy. Yeah, so that was, yeah, everyone's been through it. You guys have obviously been through it, but it's it's heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah excellent. Mm. And and so looking back, what sort of, like, criti- critical things were you, that you've done or things that have happened that have been, led to your, your success? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think... Or is it lots of things? Yeah, so many things, <laughs> yeah. mate. Yeah, I think one of them though is 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 building um so the 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 three co-founders and and JJ's considered a, we consider him a co-founder, so let's say four spending enough time together to make sure you're all completely aligned on what you're doing is crucial because you know Alex looks after the engineering team, I look after sales and business development, Kev looks after governance and raising, and JJ the marketing element. So that's kind of how we split it. And we've all got kids, all the same age. We're all getting pressure if we're not home at you know 5:30 to put the kids down. We all get back online again later on to do work and stuff. So it's really hard to find the time to go. Let's just make sure we get together regularly enough outside of the daily grind to go check in. Is everyone cool with where we're going and how it's how it's tracking? So I think that's been good that we've allocated enough time to do that because it's tempting not to, and you can all drift off. And, you know. yeah, absolutely. So that's one. I think. Selecting the right investors was another big one. So again, Kev worked really hard during that that last raise, and we all got involved. But you know, Kev was sort of you know, leading the charge there to find the right people. So people that would understand what we're about and not divert attention too much, and you know, and bring value beyond the dollars. That's been huge because they've really helped. And it's tempting to just go, well, let's just take some dumb money, let's get more dumb money, and 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 you end up with a registry that's messy and everything, you know, and everything gets too complex. So that's that's. That's another one. How many do you want? I've got like 25. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Being in Newcastle, it's great. Like it's the best place to be. We tell big clients we're based in Sydney. Yeah. But actually being in Newcastle, because you're a founder, you're giving up a lot of revenue, of, of salary potential to do it. We all stop working for a long, long period of time. So if you can give your family a, uh, some kind of stability and some kind of, of lifestyle that, that, that seems sustainable while you're doing it, they're a big part of, of any founder's journey. So if you're putting your family through something that's not sustainable, you're putting yourself under a lot more pressure. So being in Newcastle was a decision, and it, we moved a couple of the engineering guys up early on, and I think that's been a, a crucial one. You can stretch your dollars a lot more. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you get more space for the office. It's cheaper to live, all that sort of stuff. So that's that's been a big one for us too. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Yeah. And on a day-to-day basis, is there particular KPIs that you're looking at sort of in terms of monitoring the performance of the business? Yeah, Shared trips, so our North Star is how many shared trips are we, we coordinating? And so we, we watch that closely. Coming through next is CO2, so how much CO2 are we saving? So all those trips that are shared is assume there's a, a car off the road, and so we measure that. And for on-demand bus, there's a bunch of things, a bunch of metrics, but the key one is a sort of cost per trip. So how, how are we stacking up against a regular bus service? How much does that cost per trip, and how does an on-demand service measure up? Ultimately, the world is driven by cash in that way so you know that's the kind of what is the differential roughly well in certain situations you can get it to parity but it has to be built into a network um 
for most of the on-demand trails that are running around Sydney, they're, they're significantly above a cost per trip. But that's kind of skewed by the fact that when you look at the cost of a fixed bus route, it's amortised across 7,000 buses running day in, day out, and during peak, they're flat, you know, they're chockers, and then off-peak, they're empty. Whereas in on-demand, um, you, you're only looking at four vehicles, five vehicles in one zone. So I think, you know, Transport New South Wales have shown that it's possible to get cost neutral. So you take out a fixed bus and you bring in an on-demand bus and the cost is equivalent, but the patronage can go up because you get a better experience. That's that's the that's the underlying economic balance that needs to go through. But, you know, there's complexity in how you make that happen in bus contracts and public transport spheres. Everyone gets worried as soon as you start talking about changing bus bus timetables you know yeah, yeah, yeah. that's my bus I don't move get, my cheese yeah, yeah don't move my cheese exactly yeah. is it harumph <laughs> yeah and how, how soon do you think it'll be until we start seeing sort of autonomous buses march dubbo get out there there'll be one there in march <laughs> with the liftango nrma and and bus lines on the side now will that be like fully running with cars at the same time it's, or it's an on the road so yeah it's kind of tongue-in-cheek so what's happening at the moment is that is uh the the agencies are funding trials in order to force legislation insurance all those frameworks to deal with the fact that this is coming and so that's where we're at, at the moment we're still forcing trials through and they're not really solving transport problems they're solving legislative problems so that, that will wash through over the next, you know, two, five years. And Evan Walker at the Smart um, Innovation Centre Transport are doing great work there, and we are part of that. I think adoption of, you know, the next place it will be within closed closed um, campuses and that sort of stuff, you can get a lot yeah. more control. You know, the, the debate rages five to ten years for that kind of context. In a city, ten to thirty, you know, you can be vague about exactly what it looks like. But I think everyone can agree it's coming. It's just the time frame that everyone disagrees on. And our view is you can start doing it with, you know, driver buses, buses with drivers in, and prepare everyone for the future and understand how this... And what we're doing is we're understanding how the systems, the booking, the ticketing, the onboarding, all that sort of stuff is going to work in future. So we're positioned for it when when public adoption comes through, when the systems, the guidance systems get up to spec. So it can never be soon enough for us, but the story is it's coming and it's just a matter of how quick we get there. Yeah, awesome. What do you think? Uh, look, I, I mean, I, I can't wait for it to happen. Oh, like insane. Yeah. And are you seeing around the world sort of the, the particular government sort of more active in sort of pushing this faster? Yeah, we get a bit of exposure to the US, to the UK, Southeast Asia. I think Australia's done amazing things. New South Wales, in particular, have done amazing things through the on-demand trial, and they've copped a lot of flack for it, to be honest. Because yeah. this sort of thing isn't cost-effective from day one. You've got to in, you've got to invest. So New South Wales has been a hotbed and actually overseas agencies have been coming to Sydney to see what they're doing in on-demand and autonomous vehicles. So that's great, but they're focusing you know, quite heavily on, on the on-demand space. I think autonomous vehicles, obviously the US have opened up a lot of their restrictions and a lot of their test beds. The UK is doing some great stuff in, in the Midlands um, and they're putting a lot of money behind it in 2020 onwards. So it, there's a bit of a race, to be honest, to be you know relevant in that space and to be driving those things, which is great. But I think Australia can be proud of what's happening in New South Wales and starting to happen in the other states. So that's a positive, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We're kind awesome. of in the mix of it. Yeah. And actually, we probably wouldn't exist if New South Wales government hadn't been going through this change right now. So you know, we can owe a, a bit of that to um, yeah, to the to the the, the effort that they're putting in now. Awesome. Yeah. So what's next for Lift Hango? What does the business look like five years from today? 
hopefully we've still got okay so there's a few a few parts to that one is global domination and we all say that let's take over the world but that translate that into reality it'll mean contracts in the u.s it'll mean a bigger team in the u.s delivering local reason the u.s is because access to capital access to higher valuations access to mobility focused funds is really good over there australia's been great for us up until now but the reality is to raise the next round of the valuation we're looking at we're probably going to have to be there so we have to support that with contracts anyone that says they're going to raise in the u.s off a customer revenue story in australia is is kidding themselves so that's that's key and we've got a great guy, Jake, Jacob Grieg, who's over there now setting that process up and Kev will head over and, and join him in the next few months. So that's one, North America. Then we'll rationalize in Southeast Asia and, and Europe. Reason being, we need a position in those areas because the growth in those areas is going to be huge. So we need to we need to position there. And I think in five years time, we'll have probably raised again. The team would probably have doubled in size again. We'll probably have the same big night in the office when the decision came through. There'll be just as much stress and it's funny when you look back at coming from, this is funny, isn't it? Getting, <laughs> reflecting on something from, you know, a few years back. We've been around for four or five years now. But you look back at the transition from two people, three people to seven. And I think it was almost as stressful as the transition from 10 to 20. So I think the same stresses, the same strains apply, just the numbers slightly different. And I think, yeah, that's, it's been interesting to see how that translates into the next 20 to 40, 20 to 50 to 200 kind of thing. I'm hoping <laughs> that you learn as you go and you grow as you, uh, you know, personally as a founder, you grow as you go. So you, you kind of deal with that extra scale by using what you've learned from the last growth thing. That, yeah, makes, yeah. that yeah. sounds a bit hippie. And <laughs> no, no, I, think that, I think that's right. I think we all learn as, yeah. as, as you evolve. Yeah. And so you just mentioned like the stresses, like what were the sort of the main sort of stresses? Was it the funding to have to pay all the, pay all the staff or was yeah, it? Yeah, well, we had a couple of those moments, but, but that, I mean, that was during the FERB round, right? Because yeah. we budgeted for something and that wasn't happening. So that was stressful. And we found ways around that. We scrambled for revenue and stuff. So that was stress for sure. But I think beyond the raise crunch points, which are always bad, the growth part of going from like five guys who just sit in a room like this and go, hey, mate, can you just do this? Or can you just, and, and you kind of operate like a rugby team that knows exactly what the person next to you is going to do when you do something to then going to 10, 20 people where you have to go, all right, I'm no longer going to do a bit of everything. I'm going to hand over this to you and trust that you're doing it and I'm going to do that. You know, so that, that, that's taken some time to get right. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of organizing from being everyone does everything to that. Nah, okay, let's focus and then you have to get the interactions between those groups right. And that's that's pretty tricky. And then positioning for scale, you know, going from, hey, we can make this happen if there's only two, four clients, but how do we do it when there are 50, 60 clients at the same level of, of pace? And how do we then prepare for 200? You know, that, that, that's, that's been a constant challenge and that's, it's an exciting one, but yeah, it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's the, the evolution of the, as companies or startups grow, there's, uh, there's always lots of challenges. Awesome. Well, th- thanks so much for joining us today, uh, Tristan. It's been uh, great no hearing your, your story. I think uh, there's lots of interesting uh, stories there, so it's been been really good. Thank you. It's been great. So that's all for now for Founders On Air, and um, in the coming weeks we'll have uh, a few more episodes coming. So thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum, a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.